0: Listening to Radio Tedland. Heading Nowhere, written by Patrick Cullen. Chapter 9 Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Before long, my time at Christina's was over. I'd grown tired of being an unpaid babysitter, and she'd grown tired of me and my immaturity. Just before I left, she got a visit from an old boyfriend, now living in Ailat. It was years since they were together. But now he had late stage testicular cancer and was visiting some old friends one last time. She told me proudly how she gave him a blowjob, even though one of his balls was as big as a grapefruit. It was the best present she could think of, she said. When she finally threw me out, I went to pieces. I got very drunk, much more than normal. I had a small rucksack with all my things over my shoulder and walked through the city, sitting on benches drinking vodka neat from the bottle. Drowning in despair. I picked up a tin foil ashtray somewhere, folded it to make a sharp point, and then used it to scratch a bloodied cross on my forearm, like the tattooed crucifix Christina had on her right arm. I awoke the next day in a room back in the hostel, with no recollection of having checked in. There to greet me as I woke were John and Donna, an English couple I vaguely knew, and a German guy called Andy. As I awoke, they slowly filled me in on the story. I had come back to the hostel and been given a bed in the room, before going up to the bar on the roof. They had been concerned and decided to follow me up to the roof to keep an eye on me. It was Andy, a gay neo Nazi who had fought for the Croats against the Serbs in the Yugoslav Civil War, that ended up saving my life. He had grabbed hold of me and stopped me reaching the edge of the roof as I apparently tried to throw myself off it, such was my drunken despair at being dropped by Christina. They helped me get back on my feet over the next few days, making sure I was properly rehydrated and giving me vitamins too. I ended up staying in the room for some months and got to know and like them over that time. Andy got by with tips and wages made selling duty-free cigarettes and alcohol while sitting in a cage, suspended from the ceiling of one of the city's underground clubs. John and Donna did whatever it took to survive, whether that be construction and restaurant work, or tricking people into believing Donna was a prostitute, then running off with the money before the transaction could be acted upon. They ended up running a bar, a place that was a favourite haunt for many of those working illegally and living in hostels. John got me a job with Motti, a small monkey-like man. He knew almost no English and was known as Potty Motti. We managed to communicate with basic sign language and the occasional grunt. For the most part, we did building work. Motti had a brother-in-law working in real estate, so we flipped flats by going in, doing a few small reparations, then painting everything white. From time to time we would build a new flat on a roof, where one hadn't been before, but we also drove around the country and cleaned swimming pools and water towers. I worked with Motti for about four months and was pretty much full-time employed by the end of my stay. With time, I got back on talking terms with Christina again. Jim had moved back for a while. And then, some months later, I heard her call down to me from an open window in an apartment block I was walking past to tell me she'd moved and found a new man, started a new life. I also kept in touch with some of the people I met during my time with her too, and one Saturday I got a call from Bill. He was living in a bungalow in the suburbs he shared with Larissa, Christina's best friend. Apparently the grass in the garden was very long, and he offered to pay me in pot if I'd come out and cut it. When I got there, I saw the lawn was chest high in places. I went into his den and sat drinking coffee and smoking joints and bongs with him whilst waiting for him to tell me about the job. The day was long and had only just started, and Bill wanted to talk about the night before. He'd been to a party and sold most of the drugs he'd had with him, but he was certain he had an acid tab left, a Bart Simpson. I had been sampling the different LSD available in Tel Aviv, and this was the type I'd found to be the best. I smoked and drank coffee, while Bill went through his clothes from the night before looking for the acid. By the time he finally found it, we'd agreed on what I'd have to do to earn it. I would still cut the grass, though now we would wait till the acid took effect. Then I'd cut it with a pair of nail scissors. I had no real intention of doing it, I just wanted to get hold of the LSD, which I did. Twenty minutes later, Drinking coffee and smoking joints while waiting for it to work, the phone rang. It was one of Bill's friends with major news. Kurt Cobain was dead. Bill turned on the TV where MTV were playing Nirvana, then put Unplugged on his stereo. I was shocked, but the acid was having an effect now and I needed to get out. I discovered we needed cigarettes. I got some money from Bill, as well as what seemed unnecessarily complicated directions to a kiosk which started with my having to turn left when I went out the door. I set out and turned right instead, and after managing to cross a couple of streets, quickly found an inviting park to walk into. All the angles, perspectives and distances seemed wrong in the park though, and there were rows of strange stone sculptures and groups of people walking around looking at them. There was the occasional tree and large green spaces. In the middle of the park, There was a burger bar surrounded by a large concrete courtyard. I went in, somehow managed to order a meal, and carried it on a tray over to a table. It was only when I sat and looked at what was on the tray that I saw everything was in miniature size a burger the size of a bottle top, French fries like matchsticks, and a cola so small I could barely grasp it between thumb and finger. Confronted by such a challenge, I quickly discovered I was no longer hungry, if I ever had been. Then I soon became distracted as I realized I could hear music. It sounded familiar, but at the same time like nothing I'd ever heard before, and there was something about it I found disconcerting. I left my meal uneaten on the tray and ran out of the restaurant with fingers in my ears. I didn't stop running until I made it fifty meters away from the concrete courtyard, but when I pulled my fingers out of my ears, the music was still just as loud. Only now I knew who it was. Charles Manson, singing lead vocals on a Beatles album that had never been released. Unable to run away from it, I walked around the park with the music in my head for a while feeling relatively calm before finally finding an exit. It seemed like I'd changed cities when I eventually left the park and the music behind, and I stood now at the start of a street of old-fashioned terraced houses. Made individual by different owners over the years, in essence they were all the same design, each with a small suburban garden out front that ended with a hedge and gate. Cars were parked along both sides of the road, but none were being driven on the road, and there were otherwise no sounds or signs of life. I chose to walk up the pavement on the left-hand side of the street. Each gate I passed, a dog ran out from the small garden within and launched itself toward me, never quite making it over the gate, but hanging its head there, barking and growling, snarling and salivating. The first few times it happened I got a shock, but then I came to expect it and began to wonder what was going on. I thought there must be a reason for the dog's reactions to me and within no time it struck me, it must be because I was dead. I had died, strong acid, dangerous roads, strange park, and now I was walking around as a ghost only dogs could recognize. Soon, I was pondering whose ghost I might be and suddenly it came back to me that Kurt Cobain was dead. I started to walk the street in the certain knowledge I was the ghost of Kurt Cobain, singing Nirvana songs, the lyrics of which I could suddenly remember word for word. And now, the dogs no longer barked or growled, they just ran up to the gate and hung their heads there, looking curious and slightly mournful as I walked past singing. By the end of the road, though, my mind had already gone on to wondering why I was a ghost and why there was no traffic. I was analysing the likelihood of there having been some nuclear or chemical attack I'd somehow survived, when I turned a corner and was confronted by a busy street. I managed to flag down a taxi, but by now I was in a terrible state of confusion. I kept on changing my destination. Each time I said back to the hostel, I would think of Christina and tell the driver to take me to her flat instead. By about the fifth time I said he should take me to the hostel, the driver made up my mind for me and said that was where he was taking me, full stop. I made it back to the hostel, and later that afternoon got a phone call from Bill, checking I was still alive, and then deciding to have some fun playing with my mind. He asked me to imagine getting on a bus, going up the stairs to the upper deck, and counting things along the way. I was unable to make sense of his question, and each time he explained it to me again, it seemed to change in some slight yet significant way. I ended up feeling it was left lying there in my mind, like some knot I couldn't untie but was unable to leave alone, picking at it distractedly as it slowly drove me mad. A month or so later, Bill asked me if I wanted to do some work for him again. As well as selling drugs, he earned money with what he called hospitality, giving select visitors to Israel a personalised tour of the country. Bill asked me to come along on one of these tours, a day where we would drive from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and then down to the Dead Sea. We would drive in a car Bill had borrowed and the guests turned out to be a couple of incredibly overweight Orthodox Jews from New York. My job was to keep them amused whilst Bill drove. While he would give them authentic information about where we were, I was to make things up in the weirdly funny manner Bill assured me I was so good at. I myself wasn't so sure of my talents as Bill was, and having felt nervous before meeting up, I dosed myself with vodka and joints to the extent I was barely able to think, let alone talk in a supposedly weirdly funny manner. I sat in the front beside Bill, and having tried valiantly yet ultimately unsuccessfully the first ten minutes to live up to my billing, I settled for silence punctuated by occasional incoherent mumbling. Bill gave me a disappointed look when he realised I would be unable to play my storytelling role but the Orthodox Jews in the back seemed happy enough to talk amongst themselves, and within time, the others seemed to more or less forget I was there in the car. On the way to Jerusalem, we stopped at the Elvis Inn, a 1950s-style American diner dedicated to Elvis Presley. Inside, the two large Orthodox Jews bought Elvis memorabilia and had their fill of kosher Elvis burgers, while outside, a large statue of the king pointed vaguely in the direction of the holy city. Back on the road, we made it to Jerusalem, and then onto the Dead Sea. On the way back, the two passengers in the back started discussing the peace process with Bill. The Oslo Accord, recently signed at the White House, had had a polarizing effect on many people in Israel, inspiring those who longed for peace, but inflaming and radicalizing those who felt it was a mistake to negotiate with the Palestinians. The Orthodox Jews in the back clearly belonged to the second category and talked with Bill about what could only be termed a planned insurrection if the peace negotiations were to continue as planned unchecked. They claimed to have talked with settlers on the West Bank who had plans to organise an underground army to fight a civil war against Rabin's government, should the potential concessions of the Oslo Accord be forcibly implemented. Apparently, they had asked Ariel Sharon if he would lead this army of settlers, and he had concurred. I have no way of knowing whether this anecdote is true. It is my recollection of what was said by two overweight Orthodox Jews being driven around Israel and overheard while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Within a year, though, Rabin was dead, and seven years later, with all hopes of any peace deal well and truly buried alongside him, Sharon was elected Prime Minister. At that time, seven years later, I called the Israeli embassy in Copenhagen where I was living, and said I had information about the man about to become Prime Minister. After I'd spent 15 minutes retelling my story to the man the switchboard had put me through to, he simply asked, Do you have a problem with any of that which has happened? My clear impression was that he himself did not have a problem with the way events had turned out, so there was nothing more to do about my story. Other than my time with Christina, for the most part I stayed at the hostel. For the most part, because I wasn't always allowed to stay at the hostel. Sometimes this was down to lack of work and hence money, or occasionally due to periods of extreme drunkenness, where my behavior meant I was asked to leave for some time. Not being able to stay at the hostel meant I would end up sleeping down at the beach. There, I'd find some others I knew in a similar situation, and we'd make a part of the beach our own, where we could lie drinking during the day and sleeping close together at night. To a certain extent, we looked after each other, but we were the wildest fringe of any travelling community, and sometimes things got rough, with violent arguments and the occasional drunken fight. There was always enough money from someone or somewhere for a few bottles to share round, each day and evening down at the beach. Otherwise, though, life on the beach seemed about as low as you could get while travelling, insecure and exposed with nothing but a blanket to lay on and whatever you could drink from whatever bottle that was going round. Without knowing whether it was actually true or not, we lived under the illusion that due to the experience of many Jewish refugees during and following the Second World War, there was no law against shoplifting in Israel. As a result, we would walk barefoot around a nearby supermarket, eating pick-and-mix chocolates and cuts of sliced meats from the delicatessen, while filling baskets with things we'd never buy just leave by the counter when we'd finished eating. We were never stopped for not paying for what we ate, but at one point, the supermarket made a rule about having footwear on, which was enough to keep most of us out.